Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. All right, y'all, before we get into this episode of Small Doses Podcast, gotta let you know that I will be in San Diego next weekend. Yes, I will be at... The Laugh Factory, San Diego. It is happening February 23rd and Saturday, February 24th. Now, I know a lot of y'all been like, oh, when are you going to come to L.A.? You're going to do a show in L.A.? We want to see you in L.A. I ain't coming to L.A. no time soon. I live in L.A., so I ain't trying to work in L.A. But if you're trying to see me and you are in L.A., you may have to take that ride because I will be in San Diego next weekend, February 23rd and 24th at the Laugh Factory, San Diego. Get your tickets at amandaseals.com. Also, want to let y'all know that my shows that were in Dallas for that weekend got moved. They're still being rescheduled, so I'll keep you up on that. And I'll be in Birmingham, Alabama at the end of March, March 22nd and 23rd. You can also catch me in Stanford. We've got dates in Philly, Boston, Baltimore, Detroit, all coming up. Make sure you go to amandaseals.com. Sign up for the newsletter so that you don't miss out when these tickets go on sale. Also, you can get perks because if you are Patreon, you get first dibs at tickets. And if you're on Patreon, you can also check out our new bonus episodes of Small Doses Podcast. I record them live. You all get to enter the chat and talk to me about the things that I'm talking about actually in the podcast. Y'all ask for advice, questions, etc. It's very interactive. And the Patreon community that we are building is really dope and special, and it is really not what you are getting on Meta. So if you want to get all of that and you want to get these bonus episodes of Small Doses Podcast and you know what to do, if you love Small Doses, there's more for you when you subscribe to the Patreon. Last but not least, remember to listen to The Amanda Seal Show, my radio show. We go down every day. You can check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And also, we are syndicated in select cities. And I've been doing lives on YouTube that go along with the radio show to talk about these political topics that sometimes five minutes just ain't enough to hit, all right? We just did Side Effects of Project 2025. You know what? I'm so used to doing small doses. I just did Side Effects. We just did an episode called The Fuck is Project 2025? And you all need to get that information. So please go to YouTube, Amanda Seals TV. All right, that's all I got for you in that way. And now we're going to go the other way and get another episode of Small Doses Podcast. This is part two of Sherilyn Eiffel's Side Effects of Civil Rights. Y'all in for a good one. It's so funky. <laughs> Y'all, I consider it a huge privilege and also a testament to the fact that I have been a lifelong teacher's pet. Anytime that I get to be in conversation with one of our great Black intellectuals. Last week, you got to see part one of Side Effects of Civil Rights with Sherilyn Eiffel Esquire, the current Vernon E. Jordan Jr. Esquire Endowed Chair in Civil Rights at Howard University. And also, she is not only a law professor, but she's also the former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Side note, at one point, they were trying to call it NAACP, and they were really like trying to tell people like we should stop calling it NAACP and it should be NAACP. And I was just like, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like this is necessary. I think we all think the AA is, is strong. The NAACP sounds like AA Ron. Like, that's what that sounds like to me. It's just insubordinate and churlish. All right. But... 
We decided to make this a two-part episode because honestly, Miss Sherilyn's commentary is so robust. It's so dense, but it's so necessary that I was like, they need a break. They need to come back the next week. <laughs> so that's what we did. We have brought you back this week for part two of Side Effects of Civil Rights with Sherilyn Eiffel Esquire. Now, in this conversation, we continue our speaking about civil rights, but she really, really delves in even more into why voting is so important, particularly in this election. And I think that's something that a lot of folks are not really grasping. I think there's a lot of not I don't even want to say delusion, but there's some distortion that's happening around this election that is really not grounded in reality. It's more so grounded in a like misdirection of where we were to how we've gotten to here. And thankfully, we have the genius of Miss Sherilyn to guide us, <laughs> to guide us. And when it comes to, you know, the conversation around civil rights, and how that is affecting us now, she really walks us through two of the major civil rights issues that I don't know that a lot of people even consider to be civil rights issues. I think that's what's so important about this conversation is that I think so many of us, myself included, have really, we have had a disservice with our education in being able to properly identify things and thus we're not able to properly fight we're not able to properly like refine our rage in the right direction if we don't know where things are placed in the landscape. And as we move forward with this time, I cannot stress enough to all of us out here that this is not a simulation. I know people say that really jokingly, right? They say, oh, it's like this is a simulation. You know, oh, it's like America season two. No, it's happening. We are the thing happening. We are the history that we have read about and learned about and had all these, you know, pontifications and thoughts and commentaries about, all these opinions about. We are it now. And I think some of us didn't realize that that was even possible. And we didn't realize that even when shit wasn't crazy, we were it then too. And so, you know, the work that I'm doing right now is trying to really wrap my head around how I can be as much service to y'all as possible in these spaces, whether it's on small doses, whether it's on stage, whether it's on In Amanda We Trust, my documentary, whether it's on the radio with the Amanda Seal show, like I'm desperately trying to figure out how to wake all of us who are at least connected to me up. Like I'm, I feel like if I can get at least like my consensus consensusing, then they will add to their consensus and then their consensus will consensus and it'll be a whole consensus fest. We need consensus fest 24 to pop off. You understand me? And so that, that happens with curiosity, with intellectual effort, and with love and empathy. And so hearing last episode, hearing Miss Sherilyn speak about empathy as an effort, hearing her talk about how empathy has been attempted to be squelched, should awaken for all of us that we need to really lean into our empathy as a weapon to fight this oppressive effort. And that is something that a lot of America has been trying to stop, but so many of us have been actually doing already. So even if you're saying to yourself like, oh, this feels like more work, maybe you were already doing that work. This podcast right here is so much about empathy all the time. So if you're listening here, you're already on the right track. And we got to get on track and we got to stay on track. Okay, we got to shikari this shit. And I will say it till I'm blue in the face. 
in the hopes that we don't become blue in the United States. Ooh! <laughs> Still got jokes even though we're facing fascism. Let's get into the episode. If you are doing Alabama in 1965, you're really going hard. So let me cut, let me give you a second one. George Floyd's murder. Horrible. Oh, this was going to be my second one. Okay. Yeah. George Floyd's murder. Horrible. Those of us who've been around long enough know that police violence has been going on forever. You know, this is an issue we were intensely engaged in during my leadership at LDF. George Floyd, the video comes out and it, it, it touches, you know, us all in a, in a very particular way. Not because we haven't seen Eric Garner, not because we haven't seen Walter Scott killed in that park, not because we haven't seen Tamir Rice killed, not because we haven't seen John Crawford killed in the Walmart, not because we haven't seen Sandra Bland pulled over and treated that way by that officer, not because we haven't seen Terrence Crutcher killed after police say he looks like a bad dude, not because we haven't seen Alton Sterling killed in Baton Rouge, not because we didn't see Philando Castile bleed out in his car in St. Paul. We saw all of that. And then we saw George Floyd. And we watched for nine minutes this man tortured and murdered by an officer who was so chill, who was so certain that nothing would ever happen to him, mm-hmm. that he knelt on this man's neck for nine minutes with his hands in his pockets, surrounded by people filming him. And it struck something very deep. It struck something so deep that it struck white people. It struck everybody. <laughs> right. And globally. we ended up globally, and we ended up having what were the largest civil rights protests that this country has ever seen beyond the civil rights movement. In all 50 states, we had protests. Yeah. And we had them around the world. It was a powerful show of solidarity. Now, many people will say, where did that end up? And so on and so forth. But I want you to understand two elements of this. Apparently, they were concerned about it because we have seen more anti-protest laws passed since the George Floyd protests. That's number one, Mm -hmm. including, you'll remember, the Florida governor who signed a law that said that empowered people to have a defense if they ran over protesters with their cars. To Satan. Mm -hmm. What happened after that pushed people out into the streets? Remember, this is still during a global pandemic. No vaccine in sight at this point. This is June of 2020, and people are driven into the streets. What happened is that people, these are multiracial protests, yeah, felt something so powerful when they watched the torture of this man. That thing that they felt, the thing that was activated in them is something, is a very critical weapon that was very critical during the civil rights movement. It is a powerful weapon when deployed, and that weapon is empathy, yes. We're seeing and that it right is now. why, and that is why there are laws that are now to keep teachers from being able to teach Black history. When you look at the statutes themselves, Amanda, what they say is that students cannot be taught; that teachers are forbidden from teaching materials and subjects that may make students feel shame, shame. guilt, or discomfort on account of race. Shame, guilt, or discomfort on account of race. What they are doing is they are trying to interrupt empathy. They are trying to interrupt that feeling that you have when another human being suffers. 
And that's a very dangerous thing to interrupt empathy. But empathy, we learn it actually very often from reading because we're reading about people in circumstances that are not like our own. Right. And this is how we learn to feel as human beings for human beings who are not like us. And I talk all the time about reading the diary of Anne Frank in the sixth grade. And I think I felt something that I would call guilt, shame, and discomfort, not because I did anything, but as a human being. So again, that is a response. So when we say, where did this come from? Why are they suddenly shutting down Black history? Why are we banning all these books? Why are we? Because they saw the power of that Mm -hmm. empathy and it scared them. And so again, if we don't diagnose it right, then we'll think, see, protests don't do anything. Marching doesn't do anything. Well, apparently they think it did something. They're literally building cop cities. They're literally (laughs) building Disney World's training grounds for cops specifically to train them to suppress uprisings. So why would you need to do that unless you feared those uprisings? And so I think the important thing for us is I'm not saying that's all we need to do. We need to obviously do a lot more for sure. But I want to be careful about the diagnosis because I don't want us to think that we are reacting to them. People say to me all the time, we're all so reactionary and they're so strategic. And I call bullshit on that. Actually, we're strategic and they're responding Mm. to us. And Mm. if we're not careful, we will Mm -hmm. stop doing the things that actually are powerful because we'll think, oh, it's not going anywhere. Well, then why did they put all this effort into responding to it? They're responding to it precisely for that reason. And so, yes, we have to have more tools in our toolbox. But why are they scared of people standing online for nine hours? And then ask yourself about, you know, voting doesn't work when people say that. Like, are you really voting? And I mean this. I mean, like, this year, are you voting? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected. As a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Wait, because I need this to, I need, I need to like, I, I can't even let you just run into this. I need, because <laughs> I'm kind of like losing it. <laughs> uh, Ms. or Mrs. I can't Ms. call Ooh. you Sherilyn. I can't do it. You have to do it. I, I have it's, to do it. I was, I, but, ah, too much respect. Miss Sherilyn. Okay. All right. I'll take it. Miss, yes. <laughs> That's actually, still kind of auntie-like, right? I like I'll that. take Miss Sherilyn. Yes. Miss Sherilyn. That feels very West Indian too. So Miss <laughs> Sherilyn, I am deeply concerned for what we're stepping into. One, because I have more of a empathic response than an actual informed response to what's coming. So I'm trying, trying to engorge myself with information so I can like truly have the academic and intellectual grasp of it beyond just my feeling. But I think there's also a just genuine, we're dealing with complacency because we have people who are also like, I I mean, what's what's the the problem? problem? Then we have apathy, but then we have like really bold inaction. It's not even apathy because apathy is, I don't care. But then there's people who are like, no, I very much care and I'm not going to vote because I care. And they feel like they're standing on a moral ground that I consider to be a house on sand. And when it's related to, you know, Joe Biden's response to the genocide in Palestine, they feel very empowered, you know. And I understand Arab folks feeling this way, but I've seen this amongst the black community, particularly who are like, I'm done. I'm not voting for anybody That's That's it. it. And I don't think that it has anything to do with my understanding of things because I know that voting doesn't matter and it's not going to do anything anyway. So there's like these, there's so many layers here that I genuinely don't know what to do. So I have a spanking for everyone on this point. I'm going to sit back. (laughs) So let me, let me start with just when we talk about voting, what we are talking about. Um, because this is, I think, where even those of us who are informed have created a kind of hierarchy as though we are completely on point when in fact we are not. My concern is that when I say, are you voting? What I mean is that most of us consider ourselves voters who people who say, I always vote. They mean every four years or even every two years. They mean that they vote for the president, they vote for their governor, they vote for their senator, they vote for their mayor. The rest of the offices, not so much. As a matter of fact, sometimes they go into the voting booth and we've all done it. Mm -hmm. You voted for the what we call the high salience elections. You voted for the governor and you voted for your senator, you voted for your representative, you voted for your mayor. Then it said sheriff. And maybe you skipped it. You didn't know who either of these usually guys were. And then it said judges of the court of appeals or district court judges. And it said, pick three. 
And maybe you skipped that one too. Or maybe you just voted for the sheriff that had the D next to his name or the R next to their name or whatever floats your boat. People but you have vote no idea. They like the name. <laughs> you will vote because his name is Wild Bill Jones. Yes. yes. Okay. But you consider yourself a voter. You don't vote for most of the offices on the ballot. And you certainly don't vote in an informed way for most of the offices on the ballot because you don't, even if you cast a ballot for those races, you don't even know who those people are what positions they take, or what the office does. You don't know that the railroad commission in Texas sets the oil and gas standards and stewards all of the the public resources. You don't know what your public service commission does. You don't know that the probate judge in Alabama actually is the judge that then I have to tangle with on election day because they cover elections. You don't know what these offices even do. So you don't know who you're, you don't know that the sheriff is the person who evicts people. And so you are voting out of some kind of superior sense that you are a participant in the democracy. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to us as now. Okay. I'm talking to, <laughs> and I, and I say this all the time when I'm talking to, you know, my Delta Soros, but like, we have to get serious about this thing before we even get to. Just so you know, my producer is your Soror. So she had a little. Hey, hey, Soror. So th- <laughs> before we even get to the people who don't show up on election day. Let's talk about the people who do show up, we as Black people, on Election Day, with everything to lose or gain from almost every office on that ballot. Now everybody wants to pay attention to school board elections now that the crazy white right-wing people have taken them over? Right. What stopped you from voting in an informed way for the school board? What stopped you from running for school board? Nothing. Money. So, wrong. School board elections are low salience elections. No, no, no. When they I say money, with, uh, I mean, oh. people feel like if I have money, I'm busy. Like, I really feel like that's what I, well, at least the high, the people that yeah. I know that are intellectuals that have like professional positions, like they mm-hmm. really be feeling like I'm busy. Like I, um, I have, I have things that I've got to do. But those don't have to be the people who run for school board elections. And you see it now, you see, you know, now that people have woken up, you see parents running. Parents can run. Yes. And so I'm just saying it doesn't have to be, I'm not even preaching to the, the, the super wealthy and well-connected. I'm saying ordinary people have a role to play. And there's no tool that we can set to the side and say, I'm not going to use that one as Black people. So saying you're not going to vote at all, to me, is a fool's errand because you have to. You, I mean, we don't have that many tools. Okay. We just don't. It happens to be one of them. It's not everything. I'll hit you up with another one that's really going to shame people. How about, how about how many of us try to get out of jury service? You got everything to say about, okay, you got everything to say about the criminal justice system. Yep. You recognize all the inequities. You recognize the racism. You recognize mass incarceration. You don't believe the police. You have all your stuff. And yet when they call you to perform the function of sitting in that jury box and making decisions, you trying to figure out how to get out of it. Now, if you're in a job that's not going to pay you, that's going to dock you for that time, and what they give you for jury service is insufficient, I totally get it. And that's why we should be advocating for that. We should be asking for that legislation in all places that make sure that you get what you need and that your employers cannot, you know, dock you for jury service and so forth. We could make that an issue. Mm-hmm. But you know that that's not the reason most people are trying to get out. They just don't want to do it. And that's become like a thing that we all say and we all understand. Oh, my God, jury service. 
Well, I personally would like to serve on a jury. They never pick me, so I never get to serve on a jury, <laughs> but I would like to. I would like, but the point is, that is a form of power. That's also a tool. I'm now talking about the tools of citizenship. If they told you Black people could not serve on juries, we'd be marching on Washington. Yes. Okay. But we can serve on juries. In fact, the Supreme Court said it in 1886. It was a big deal. Strouder versus West Virginia. Maybe it was 1883. The point is that we are not supposed to be kept from serving on juries. And yet when we have the opportunity to do so, we opt out. So I, we've got jury service. We've got voting, which we're either Well, why not do you doing- think we're doing that, though? Why do you think we're opting out? Why do you think we're turning our head, checking out, instead of in being involved in these spaces? Well, I do think part of it is the reason why I'm on this show, Amanda, is that I think we have not been sufficiently educated about these things as conduits to power, right? So if I tell you about the railroad commissioner, I tell you about the probate judge, or I tell you about, you know, any of these offices and what how they're empowered to affect your life, Right. I think that people are unaware. And so you you look at these, th- you know, maybe you look at sheriff and say, I'm not voting for no cop. Well, th- that is the cop <laughs> that can determine. We had a sheriff's race here in Maryland and Baltimore where the sheriff had to run on a platform. I'm going to do evictions differently. I can't change the fact that, that that's what I'm required to do by the court when I get an order to evict, but it doesn't have to be done the way it's being done. Right. We will not embarrass people by putting off right, know, all this notices stuff up all over street. that. I, all yeah. of, I'm just saying, like, so there are actually platforms <laughs> that, <laughs> that you can have as a sheriff that matter to maybe matter to our community, right? And all over the South, we have this sheriff's movement of what they call constitutional sheriffs, of right-wing sheriffs who believe they are the only actual law enforcement authority in the country and that they have the power to confiscate ballot boxes. So across the South, that that's the platform of a number of sheriffs. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's called the constitutional sheriff's movement. What? And they're aided by these um, right-wing think tanks, the Claremont Institute, and that's what they believe. They believe that they are the only true law enforcement that was ever contemplated at the beginning of this country and that they are empowered to, you know, these folks who wanted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. I mean, th- right. this, is, this, this is serious. So this is what I'm saying. I do believe that it is because we have not sufficiently educated ourselves about the positions, about the way in which they connect to our lives. And that's why I say that we have to get off of the addiction to elections are every four years and let's focus on the presidency. I've been railing against this for the last year and a half. All these polls about what's going to happen next year. Next year is next year. I mean, there's elections all year long, depending there on where you live. Every year is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Virginia, Virgi- the Virginia state legislature is either going to be Republican or Democratic after this, and they already have their Republican governor. Well, Louisiana just had that situation too. They, they became right. they became red again. That's right, because people didn't come out for the governor's race. But the legislature in Virginia is going to decide whether or not women have access to abortion and can make their own decisions about their own bodies. So does it not affect us? Are people not going because it's not a presidential year and there's no governor on the race? They're not going to go vote in their state house and Senate elections? This is what I'm talking about. I think that we have, uh, and, and it's not, in some ways, it's not our fault because I think the political parties and the media have chosen to talk about elections. That's why I can open up the paper today and there'll be a million stories about how Biden is polling and how Trump is polling for an election that will take place next year. But there right. will be nothing about the elections that are on the ballot this year. That's what I'm saying. And so we have to kind of opt out of that. And that's why on your show, on other Black-owned media, in Black papers, we have to be talking in specific ways about 
the races that are going to matter to us every year that are on the ballot. Do you know how many people run unopposed? That's what happened in Louisiana. All these seats unopposed. Nobody put it. And as I said, you could run for school board. I mean, hell, if the person's running unopposed, why not? You sign up your paperwork and you do it. So I think we have to begin to use our places where we congregate to share the information at this level because we need information that works for us and for our community and for our lives. And that means the churches need to play this role. That means the sororities and the fraternities need to play this role. That means that every place where we gather needs to have that information. And so I think what we are suffering from is the lack of conduits to the kind of information we need to vote with power and to exercise that vote with power to explain why jury service is important and why you should not turn away from it. We have to understand what those issues mean for us as a community. And the truth is, when your child gets arrested, the person you're most concerned about is not President Biden. Hmm. You are worried about the DA. Yeah. You are worried about the judge before whom they are going to appear. Yeah. Right? When you think about the future of your children, you're worried about what the school board is saying is going to be are, are going to be their policies. You're worried about funding for your school. You're not thinking about Kamala Harris. God bless her. So I think the ways in which we have been trained to think, it's it's not that obviously the president and the vice president and your governor that is powerfully important for your life, but so are these other offices. And what the right wing did was they got in on the ground floor of all of this and started exploiting it. That's how they were able to take over the legislatures. And then the legislatures could gerrymander the districts so that they would have outsized power. They took over the school boards. They took over all these local races, all of the judges, the state court judges. And it's time for us now to get serious and to get smart. You know, my mantra is leave no power on the table. Mm. Leave no power on the table, which means you need the school board. You need the public service commission. You need the railroad commission, the probate judge. And you need the president, the vice president, the governor. We don't have the luxury of leaving power on the table. Well, I'm going to be using that and I will credit you every time because I'm in that argument damn near every day with very smart people who feel very convinced that they are doing something radical by doing nothing. Well, when you say, when people say they're not going to vote, do they mean there are particular offices I'm not going to vote for or do they mean they're not going to show up? Because I think they have to be challenged. If you're saying that you're not going to vote because you don't like your mayor or you don't like the president, what about all the other offices? Are you going to educate yourself about them and vote? Because otherwise, then I think you're using it as an excuse. If what you're saying is you have a problem with the president of the United States and therefore I'm not going to vote for the mayor, the city council, the school board, the public service commission, I don't believe you. <laughs> Do you think it matters... Do you think it matters in this election? Because I, I completely agree with you. We have to be voting for all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. No power left on the table. Yep. A lot of people feel very passionate about abstaining from voting in this election for the president in particular. Do you think that that to accomplish, matters? To accomplish what? I mean, I think that, <laughs> I think that, and I understand people feel, you know. No, your you, face you just now was like. <laughs> but you have a right. You have a listen. Our vote is one of the few things we have that no one can take from us. And I remember being in elementary school and my teacher saying about voting. Remember, this is back in the olden days. <laughs> and she said, 
a woman doesn't even have to tell her husband who she voted for. And I, I that stuck with me. Like, it's so, mm. so pers- it's so personal. Nobody has the right, you know? So I want to say that I love that people feel passionately about their vote. I'm not going to give my vote to just anybody. That's real. And, and I want to respect that. I think that's really, really important. But I, I do also want to be very honest about the moment that we're facing in this country. We are either going to be a democracy or we're not. Now, I'm not here singing the praises of American democracy as though I haven't been a civil rights lawyer for 30 years, which obviously means we have been an unhealthy democracy. I fully admit that we have been an unhealthy democracy with many flaws. Right. But if you think that is the same as living in an authoritarian regime, you are sadly mistaken. And so my job is to fight, to live to fight another day and to fight with some available tools. And so I can never, with this election coming up, if it indeed is between the two front runners of the two parties at this moment, I could never sanction the idea that in order to feel that you are fully realizing your personal displeasure with some of the policies of a candidate who was otherwise at least committed to democracy in this country, that you would then withhold your vote with the knowledge that it might produce the election of a cruel, self-absorbed, immoral authoritarian. That it's, it's tough, but we got to do tough things sometimes. And so I would say you live to fight another day and you vote in the way that allows you to live to fight another day, to have some tools to do that fight. Because if you think that it's the same and they're all the same, you are sadly mistaken. You're uninformed. You have to look in the the face of your children and you have to look in the face of your grandchildren 20, 30 years from now, when they're living under an authoritarian regime, when they're jailed or just you know, working like a cog in a wheel. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of black media as a place where we are represented and also protected as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, You'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. 
Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and bliggity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. What do you say to people who say, well, I'm not voting because it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they want to anyway. Look at the Electoral College. Well, that's I. So here's the thing. This is now here. I'm with you. My view is that this is what this election stands for for me. This election stands for on the other side of it, presuming that we are not an authoritarian regime. It is time for us to yes. reimagine this entire democracy. And that's correct. what is driving me to Howard Law School, where I'll be opening a 14th Amendment Center on Law and Democracy oh, next wow. year, and where I'll be teaching a course called Reimagining American Democracy, the 14th Amendment. Amazing. It is not just a history course. It is about reimagining at this time the new democracy that we want. Yes. Because I believe that this is the moment that is confronting us. That's why mm-hmm. we get to look at the Supreme Court and what reforms need to be made to the Supreme Court. We get to look at the Electoral College. We get to look at the Senate. We get to look at their rules that allow one person to hold up the confirmation of all of these people in the military. Unbelievable. That allow one person through the filibuster. Yep. That allows Joe Manchin, uh, allows us to have licked childhood poverty with the child tax credit, the check that went out every month to people with children, with young children, that eliminated 80% of child poverty And that was not extended last year in December because one person, Joe Manchin, believed that people might be using that money for drugs. In his state where he is allowing an entire opioid crisis to go rampant. The point is, that's a structural problem because one senator Mm. should not be able to determine whether we lick childhood poverty. One senator or two should not be able to determine that we can't even have a debate about amending the Voting Rights Act in order to protect Black voters. So there's structural reforms that have happened in the Senate. And on the other side of this election, that's where our focus needs to be. Our focus needs to be on reshaping and reimagining this democracy so that it works for us. Compromises that were made in the original Constitution, including the Electoral College, compromises that were made to appease the slave states, that were made to appease rural states that had a very small population, have to be reimagined. We have to look at D.C. statehood. We have to do these things on the other side of this election. So that's the other thing I would say, Amanda. If what you want to do is just cast your ballot and then sit back and judge what happens, Mm -hmm. that's not going to work. We need people to cast their ballot this year and next year for every race and to vote in an informed way, and then after the election, to stay engaged. And that means, I keep saying people, once a month, you can call your senator, and you should. They do worry about these calls, trust me. You can call them, you can tag them on Twitter. I was going to say, they like worry about they social media. People are they like, do. what's the point of oh, social media? Trust I'm like, me. what? Trust me, they do. <laughs> they care. They do. You need to show up at when your congressperson has a town hall. Have you ever attended a school board meeting? Is there something stopping you? Have you ever attended a city council meeting? Or do you just complain? 
about garbage pickup and the roads. And and so what I'm saying is I believe at this time, given the rise of authoritarianism, fascism, hate groups, explicit, old-fashioned, anti-Black racism, that we have to be refreshed and renewed in how we approach our engagement with this country. And that means it's time out for posturing and behaving like robots going into a booth and then thinking that there's no follow-up that has to happen after it. You have to vote and then you have to hold them accountable. And holding them accountable is not saying, next time I won't vote for them. That's not, <laughs> that's not it. Say it. Holding them accountable <laughs> is saying the truth, is showing up, is protesting. Yes, is calling your senator and telling your senator what you want the president to do because that's how the pressure happens. Pressure happens because the Senate starts hearing from members of his party that they're getting heat in their districts about X, Y, Z, you pick your issue. That's what happens. You're not going to call Joe Biden. So you say, I'm not going to vote for him next year. That's not necessarily the answer. That's not how you hold someone accountable. You hold someone accountable by moving that power up through the chain, by calling your representative or your senator at 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121, and they will connect you and you leave the message. You let my, you know, enter the name of your senator. No, I, I want him to pressure Joe Biden to do whatever. I don't want a dime of my money to do whatever. I want more money to go to X, Y, Z. That's what you need to be doing. And if you're not doing that, if you can't take time out once a month to call this person, I'm, I don't know what to tell you. I know you can do it, but we need to create that as an infrastructure in our communities. You know, like how the Deltas have Delta Days on the Hill, right? Where they, you know, Delta's carpet, Capitol Hill, and they go visit congressional offices. It's very powerful. When they see thousands of college-educated Black women all wearing red, walking through those halls and coming <laughs> to people's offices, they're shook. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, sure. they're so they're so unconfronted on such yes, a regular basis. Yes, but what if every church had a call day? We don't tell you what to do because we're a church. We don't tell you who to vote for. We don't even tell you what to talk about. But as a church, we go as a church on, this day. on Tuesday night. I'm not going to interfere with Bible study on Wednesday night, but Tuesday night <laughs> <laughs> is our call night, and everyone is asked to call their congressperson, their senator, their whatever about an issue that matters to them. I'm going to commit to adding that to my radio show. I'm Great. going to commit to adding that effort to my radio show. Great. What are the top two national civil rights issues, in your opinion, that Black people need to be supporting? And what's at stake if we don't? It's like asking me which of my children is my favorite. I mean, they're, it's really... Okay, so let's, all- let's reframe it. Let's reframe mm-hmm. it. What are two... <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go. What are just two? You know, not top two, just you know, two just that are two. up there. I just picked two. Oh goodness. Let's see. I mean, I continue to believe that we will never be a healthy democracy until we confront the truth about our criminal justice system. Right. Uh, we just will not be. And you are not a full citizen if the state can commit violence against you with impunity. You it's are just, not you're not. Right. You're just not. We recognize this in any other country. If armed officers of the state can commit unwarranted violence against you with impunity, then 
the democracy is deeply unhealthy and you cannot consider yourself a full first-class citizen. So that has to be tackled and Mm -hmm. has to be addressed. And we can't let our foot off the gas on that issue. Obviously, I would say voting because I think it's so important and removing barriers to voting. But I do believe that we have to re-engage around the issue of education. Yeah, I agree. It is just so vital. And I do think we have to help ourselves understand why public education is important. You know, as I said, it is a necessary feature of any healthy democracy. What's so funny to me, and I, I, I talk about this in my book, but also all the time that, you know, everybody knows that Brown versus Board of Education said that schools could not engage in racial segregation. But the court in Brown said something else that's really important that almost never gets talked about. What the court said in Brown was, and I'm quoting now, education is the very foundation of citizenship. It is the single most important function of state and local government. That's what the Supreme Court said. So ask yourself, wherever you are today in your city, in your town, in your county, does it look like education is the single most important function of your local government? From what you can see of your of the educational system in your city or your town, mm. does it look like that in terms of budget allocation? Does it look like that in terms of infrastructure? Does it look like that in terms of teacher pay? Does it look like that in terms of support for students, including disabled students, including students who need language assistance? Does it look like education is the most important function of your state or local government? Because the Supreme Court said in 1954 that it is, or should be. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected, as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. 
Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. You know, when we talk about Black icons of leadership, et cetera, you know, I think there's far too often, like, it stops after, <laughs> like, the civil rights movement. And then you kind of don't get ushered into that ilk unless you have passed away. Um, so then it's like, Toni Morrison, right? And it's like, well, she when she was here, though, she was doing it. And so I, there's a strong movement, I feel like, within Blackness at this point to make sure that people get their flowers while they're here. And so I would, I just want you to know that you have your flowers from Amanda Seals and the Small Doses. Thank <laughs> the you. The Small Doses crew. We are. <laughs> Thank you. We are just genuinely honored to not just receive your information, but your passion. And when I sit here and I think about how I can continue the work of people like yourself and Diane Nash, et cetera, in my creative spaces, you know, I want you to know that you create blueprints, you mm. know, that we draw from. Like, I'm going to mm. have to go back to this episode and pull from it to sculpt what I know that I have to do, which is I have to create a new program. And I've been trying to ideate around it for quite some time now. Wow. But it started out as, oh, I need to create a new program that is going to kind of get folks excited about politics, right? And then I realized I hate politics, like, <laughs> and I don't like politicians. <laughs> like, I think that these folks are full of shit in a way that I didn't even understand until I, like, kind of dated one for two weeks. And I was like, ah, this is, wow, like, this is, like, really who you are? Like, this is real, but we need more public servants, right? And that's what yeah. you've described throughout the, yes. these, you know, these episodes that we need public servants. We need people who see themselves yes. going into that space to serve a community, to serve, to serve their individualism, to serve. Right? And that's true everywhere. That's true of being a civil rights lawyer or activist. It's true of being a comedian. Yes, yes. <laughs> you can find a way to serve. You know, yes. you, can, you can. You really can. And it's encouraging people that doing that is not undermining of your self-care. It's not undermining of your self-awareness. It's a selflessness that does actually serve you. So let for all the you, selfishness Let me tell you, Amanda, have, like, I have never had an unhappy time in my work. I love that's what powerful. I do. I love what, there is something about it. I mean, it, it's like it was made for me. It just, it just sings. You work every day. Don't get me wrong exhausted, you know, all that stuff and learning, yeah. frankly, from younger generations and my kids about self-care. That's not something we were taught in my generation, particularly those of us doing civil rights work. The war stories were that you were supposed to, you know, yeah. went, go till you dropped. Yeah. But so I appreciate the self-care piece and I am trying to learn it even late. But the work is incredibly hard no matter what. And to do it, and know that you're operating at a level of excellence mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. yourself excellent yes. on behalf of the people in your community. Yeah. To know always that what you're trying to do is something good and noble and to be doing it with other people who are similarly committed. And it calls on everything. I, I think it's so interesting, you know, like to be a civil rights lawyer, you have to know something about economics and you have to know history. You know, it, I worked on environmental justice cases for a long time. You have to learn about it in the yeah, environment and you have everything like, because we're affected by everything. Right. And so it's endlessly fascinating. 
but most of all, so, so satisfying to do this work. And there's so much joy and laughter in it. We have a great <laughs> sense of humor in the civil rights community because you have to. And right. yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So I just, I don't want people to feel like, oh, these do-gooders have their, you know, <laughs> that's not how it is. It really isn't. It is, it is beautiful, beautiful work. And you never stop striving to honor the people who came before you. They were just better. They were just better than we are. It's, I'm convinced of it. <laughs> they were just better. <laughs> they were just made of better stuff, you know? And so you just never stop striving to be as strategic as they were, to be as fearless as they were, to be as right. relentless as they were. I love it. So I just, I do want people to come in. The water is fine. Public <laughs> service is a good thing. It's a fun thing. It's a joyous thing. Well, before we go, I want to shout out two people. This interview is happening because one of my homies on Instagram, Hamid Kendall, took it upon himself to reach out to you because I had said on Instagram, man, it would be a dream to interview Sherilyn Eiffel on Small Doses. And he just like went and did it. I didn't, he didn't tell me. He was like, just so you know, I have harangued <laughs> Sherilyn Eiffel and she finally responded. And I was like, what? So I want to shout out Hamid and also my very, 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 very good friend and a fellow alum of the Columbia Institute for Research and African-American Studies, Natasha Kragankar, said that she, yes, that's my sister. And she said that she misses you and she thinks about you every single day. I miss her too. She was a lovely, dedicated voting rights lawyer at LDF for a while. And that's wonderful to hear. And y'all should check out her episode that she did with us here at Small Doses, Side Effects of Free Speech, where she explains when people are like, it's freedom of speech. And it's like, no, 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 that's not that's not freedom from getting your ass handed to you on Instagram. The last dose. I have been really trying to figure out uh, how to... um, you know, trying to create action items and actualize, you know, the shift of bringing civics into our culture in a way that people feel like it just doesn't have a place, even though we know for a fact that it has had a place in our culture. The only reason we have what we have is because we've emblazoned civics into our culture and made it a part of our community, yes. like, values. That's why we stand on the line for nine hours. That's yes, why, that's because why we, we know. Do, because we actually do know. And I'm just saying, I'm pushing us to go the next level. That when you get in that booth, we have to. Every office. I, that's what what I'm saying is every generation of Black people has to be responsive to the moment in which we find ourselves, as our forebears did. Can you Whether say that one were, more time? Can you say that one more time? Every Slow. generation of Black people has to adjust ourselves, that is, to meet the challenges of the moment in which we find ourselves. Yes. Our forebears had to do it during periods of slavery. They had to do it during Reconstruction. They had to do it during the Nadir. The Nadir is that period that is regarded as the lowest period after slavery for Black people. And do you know what we did in the Nadir? We created and strengthened Black institutions. Many of our sororities were created in that period. Many of our churches, many of our HBCUs, the NAACP. Like we created things that later came to be anchors for activism. So whatever generation we're in, the generation we're in is one in which we are confronting rising fascism, in which there is global fascism and a global authoritarian movement, in which the rise of fascism has meant that many people don't care how we look. 
to the rest of the world. So that's well, so that I was gonna get to that. Lost that. <laughs> we've lost we've lost that piece, right? So we have to meet our moment. And our moment requires a higher level of citizenship than the ones that even those of us who consider ourselves engaged have actually participated in. And that means that even though last year you didn't want to do jury service, now you do have to do jury service. That means that before election day comes, two weeks before, you go on ballotpedia.com, B-A-L-L-O-T-P-E-D-I-A, ballotpedia.com. And you put in your zip code and they will tell you everything that's on your ballot this year. They will tell you who's running for those offices and what the job of the office is. That you will do that. And you will do it a few weeks before because Sunday afternoons, what you're going to do is you're going to come home and you're going to spend an hour getting yourself ready for the election. You're not just busting up in the booth because you know who's (laughs) at the top of the ticket. You are actually educating yourself about who is on the ballot and what those offices mean. And if you are somebody who's so frustrated and feels like you just want to get involved, you're going to go on runforsomething.com. Runforsomething.com. And you're going to work with this group of people that is training people to run for office and that's helping people understand what offices they can run for and helping them do it. So you're going to just go to that next level Because that is what is being required of us in this moment. Because they are trying to run the tables. They want it all back. And if we don't get serious about how we're going to engage this moment, we are going to be handing to our children something worse than was handed to us, which is a betrayal of our ancestors. (laughs) 